I don't know if you've heard, but there's an election this Tuesday. Did you all know there was an election coming up? Maybe you you'd have. Um, many of you have already voted, I'm sure. I know I have. But if you haven't voted, Christians should be good citizens, and good citizens need to vote. Even if you don't love the slate of candidates you're offered, you need to pray, you need to reflect, and you need to make your best judgment call on the slate that's there in front of you. That's something that Christians need to be doing, and I want to encourage you to do it. I want us to pray also. Uh, for this reason, I, this is an important election. Every election's an important election. This one, because our country's so deeply divided, perhaps is more important than others, but I want us to pray for our nation because this election isn't going to deal with many of the problems that we face. It's not going to deal with the social the social turmoil that we're experiencing. And in fact, it may intensify it. It won't settle the issues that divide us and divide us very deeply. In fact, this election, if it's close, is going to intensify those. This is a period of time that is going to last. It's going to take some time for all this to work through the system and there are going to be changes coming to our country one way or the other. And I think what's most important right now for the church is that we be the church, that we not only speak the right words, but we live the right way. We live out our faith. We bear witness for Jesus Christ, a winsome, spirit-filled witness, that we call people to receive Christ and and by winning people to Christ, we are able to have ever greater influence in our culture for good. That's not the simple reason why we do it, but that is one byproduct of it, that Christians are to be salt and light in the world. All too often, we haven't been that. All too often, we've been part of the problem. But we are called to be salt and light, light in the darkness and salt that preserves from decay. So I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer for our nation, and that means in prayer for the churches of our nations, and that includes this church, that we will be what God has called us to be in these very difficult times. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are deeply conscious of an election that's coming on Tuesday, and Lord, we know it's very, very important we don't know all the issues in play. We don't know exactly how you are working in all of this. We know, Lord, that we're all concerned as Christians for the state of our country. We see racial strife, Lord, and that's deeply disturbing. We see, we see the poor struggling. That's deeply disturbing. We see, Lord, ancient standards being called into question, sometimes in, in ways that are extraordinarily wrong. And so, God, we, we care for the unborn and we care for those who are struggling. And there are so many issues, so many issues. But, Lord, we know that this election isn't going to set, settle all those issues. It certainly won't end the divide in this nation. So we pray for our country. Lord, we pray that you will heal the divisions. Lord, there's so much 
hatred and so much fear, one feeding the other, that it's difficult, Lord, to even talk to solve problems. May you help us with that hatred and that fear. And Lord, may you work in our midst in such a way, raising up your church to bear witness in such a way that there would be healing in our land, that there would be a turn toward righteousness in our land. Lord, that there would be reconciliation happen in our land. We pray these things. We pray these things confident that you are bigger than every problem that we see. And we know that in the end, you will prevail. And so we offer ourselves to you, Lord. We here in this room offer ourselves to you, asking you to use us to be part of the solution, not, not the problem. And Lord, may your church be the solution, not the problem. So we commit ourselves to you. We look to you. We trust in you in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as has already been mentioned, we're going to be sharing the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And when we receive the Lord's Supper, it should be a time of deep reflection, but also deep comfort and encouragement because it points to the death of Jesus Christ, who on the cross bore our sins, took them to the grave, and then vanquished them in the resurrection. The Lord's Supper is, as the theologians said in the early church, it's the food of eternal life because it represents what Jesus has done for us. And as we eat and drink, that signifies that we have received eternal life through Christ. And so it should be a time of great celebration and, and encouragement. It isn't always that, however. Sometimes it's a reminder to us of how far we do fall short, because we all do fall short. And we're reminded of all the promises we have made to God, promises of how we were going to live, of sins that we were finally going to put away, promises of how we would serve him faithfully, and yet promises we have broken again and again and again. How many times can you break a promise before God just writes you off? When we take, receive the Lord's Supper, sometimes we think about those broken promises. So what does this supper say to you if that's where you sit right now? Is it a reminder of your sins or is it a reminder of your Savior? So in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is sharing his last Passover with his disciples. They're in the room and he takes the cup and he shares that cup with his disciples. And he talks to them about a new covenant that he's establishing. We'll come back to that in a moment. But when the Passover meal was over, they left the room, and Jesus is leading his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And along the way, he says something that shocked his disciples. Here's what he said. This very night, you will all fall away on account of me. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Of course they did, making promises. We'll never deny you, Lord. We'll stand by you no matter what it takes. And of course, Peter of all the disciples is in the forefront. He has faith in Jesus. He also has faith in himself. Lord, I will never deny you. I'll die first. But of course, we know what happened. The soldiers come for Jesus in the garden, and the disciples flee, including Peter. According to Matthew, he later shows up in the courtyard of the high priest. So after fleeing, he circled back around because he wanted to see what's going to happen to Jesus. So as Jesus is in the house of the high priest, being put on trial by the religious leaders, Peter is right outside in the courtyard waiting to see how it, how it goes. When a servant girl comes up to him and says, you were with Jesus of Galilee. Peter looks at her like she's crazy. What are you talking about? He said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then he made his way back to by the gate leading into the courtyard. He didn't want to be seen by too many. He was trying not to be too much the center of attention. But another servant girl comes up, and she says to those who are around Peter, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter takes an oath, and he says, I don't know the man. But a short time later, some of those around Peter they were watching him. Maybe they were whispering back and forth. They finally came up to him and they said, you were with him. Your accent gives you away. His accent. He's from Galilee. They're down south in Judea. Even though Galilee is north of Judea, you could say that Peter spoke southern. Those in the south in Judea said those People in Galilee, they kind of hold their vows too long. They don't talk right. You know, they don't, they, they, they've got this distinct accent, sort of like people talk about folks in the South. So you could say Peter spoke Southern. You are with him. You've got the same accent as everybody else from Galilee. And it says Jesus called, or rather Peter called down curses and swore another oath and he said, I don't know the man. And then he heard the rooster. He rushes out of that courtyard and he weeps bitter tears. He's in a place he never thought he'd be. And certainly he had to wonder if there would ever be redemption, forgiveness for him. Jesus had said three times, you'll deny me. Three times he had denied him. Now it was too late. Now he couldn't stand and fight for Jesus. Jesus was going to go to the cross. And Peter had thought about himself and his own safety.
He'd broken his promise. What hope is there for someone like Peter who makes a promise and breaks it? What hope is there for people like you and me who make promises to God and then break them? Well, Jesus at that Passover meal said something that's very, very important. He passes the cup to his disciples and he says this, this is my blood of the covenant. Notice my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. My blood poured out for many, many as opposed to few, not many as opposed to all. Jesus isn't restricting this covenant. He's saying it's for everyone who wants to be forgiven. This cup represents my blood poured out, this blood of the covenant. Jesus said this full well, knowing that his disciples and Peter would fail him that evening. In fact, a few minutes after he spoke those words I just read, he spoke the words saying, you'll abandon me. He spoke the words, Peter, you'll deny me. Jesus spoke these words that indicated forgiveness and a covenant of forgiveness to his disciples knowing they would fail him. But you see, though he knew what they would do, he also knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to carry their sins on his heart. He knew he was going to atone for their sins. He knew that his atoning blood would cover them, would envelop their lives, that they could find forgiveness. That's absolutely crucial. Every single one of us, who say that we're Christians, need to understand the blood of Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice envelops us, the past, the present, and even the future. Look at this verse. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, continually purifies us from all sin. Now, you notice that word continually in brackets. That's because I put it there. If you open your Bible, you read that verse, you won't find continually. But in the Greek, the term purifies is in the present tense. And in Greek, that often signifies ongoing action. And I think in this context, it does signify that. That the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us, continually purifies us of all sin that our sins of the past are washed away, in the present we can approach him, though we're still flawed because we're being cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we go into the future having made promises and knowing that we're going to break some promises. Not intending to, but knowing that we, well, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, just as with Peter. Knowing that, we know the blood of Christ still envelops us and there's cleansing for us. We can find acceptance because of that. That's what the Lord's Supper signifies. See, when we share the Lord's Supper, our central focus should be not on ourselves but on Christ. 
Now, Christ has died for us, so certainly we're appropriating the death of Christ by faith. Absolutely. In a sense, it is about us, but you get what I'm trying to say, that Jesus Christ is the one to whom the Lord's Supper points, and it's his act of saving grace. And he died on a cross, not for saints, but for sinners. He did it because we needed a Savior. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that we do have a Savior. And it's for people who break their promises. So, as we share the Lord's Supper today, let me say this. Don't make promises. Rest in the promise of God. Don't try to get yourself right with God by making promises of how you're going to be different. If you need to pray about it, confess something, sure, confess it and ask forgiveness. Absolutely. There's something else on your heart, pray about that, of course. But let your trust be in Jesus Christ who poured out his life for you. Let that be the focus. See, so many times... We, we get confused on this. If you have a man and a wife, husband and wife, and they're at odds with one another, it could be anything. But let's say the husband has wounded his wife deeply. He's, he has sinned and he's hurt her. And he wants to be forgiven, but he feels guilty and it's hard to feel like he will be forgiven. So what does he do? He makes a promise. I'll never do it again. He's saying that because he wants to believe he'll be a completely different person from this time on. Then he can, he can just shove away his feelings of guilt because you know what? I've made a promise. I'm going to be different. And his wife, his wife's having trouble forgiving, but she wants the relationship to work. So she hears the promise and she tries to believe the promise. He really will be different. And when those feelings come up, the bitterness, the hurt, she tries to stuff it down saying, oh, no, no, he's going to be different. He's promised. And so the relationship isn't really reconciled, but they're trying to reconcile. It's still tense. It's not, they're not at peace, but they're trying to make it work by clinging to this promise. They're trying to make it work by this promise. So what happens when he breaks the promise? What happens when he's not that wonderful person he promised he was going to be? Everything falls apart. You know, we do the same thing with God sometimes. We don't, we don't mean to, but we have trouble feeling like God can truly forgive us and cleanse us. And so we make promises to God. God, I'll never do it again. God, I promise I'll serve you. God, I'll be committed like I haven't been before. And we do it because we're not, we're not comfortable with where we've been and we're not comfortable with who we are. And we think, you know, if I can just change now from this day forward, then everything will be okay. It's a kind of works righteousness, only it's projected into the future. And our relationship with God, well, it may be a little tense, it may be uneasy, but we feel like 
we feel like we can have some sort of relationship because you know what? We're going to do better. We're going to do better. So what happens when you break the promise? What happens when, like Peter, you're confident, but your confidence is misplaced? What happens then? See, we rely on promises to bring about reconciliation because we don't know how to reconcile. But the gospel tells us how. The Lord's Supper tells us how God made it happen. God has done it through Jesus Christ, and so we have to accept forgiveness. It's free. Christ has borne our sins and freely forgives us of our sins. Don't make promises. Trust in the promise of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us a Savior because we have desperately needed a Savior, Lord. You know that. That, Lord, we are sinners and, and we make promises. We make them with the best intention of keeping them, but, Lord, in one way or another, we never keep them. At least, we never keep them perfectly, Lord. We live by grace. And without grace, Lord, there is no life for us. There is no hope for us. But, but Lord, there is grace. And for that, we are so grateful. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place on the cross and vanquished our sins in the resurrection. We thank you for that. And as we share the Lord's Supper today, May you cause the truth of this gospel to penetrate our hearts and set us free. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.